This is episode number 235 of the Well-Fed Women podcast. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to welcome Lily Nichols on today's show. She has been highly requested. A lot of you have wanted to talk about nutrition, specifically pregnancy nutrition, postpartum nutrition, all the things. So we have a lot of questions to cover, so much so that she has been generous enough to do a two-part series for us. So today we are going to be talking about preconception nutrition, intermittent fasting while pregnant, nutrition during the first trimester when all that nausea is a part of your life and more. Before I read her bio, I want to thank the Nutritional Therapy Association for making this episode possible. I am a a product of the Nutritional Therapy Association, and I went through their nine-month program, and it was really the basis for everything that you see that I do with my brand. I think a lot of people need that push to get going in the direction they want to. And the nutritional therapy practitioner course, that was basically what gave me the confidence to really start my own business and start working with people. And even though ultimately I don't work with people one-on-one anymore, I get to in a lot of different ways with my blog posts, with products, with with group sessions, stuff like that. And that's really what has been fulfilling for me. So you can do a lot with an NTP or an NTC certification. I highly, highly encourage anyone who has a desire to learn more in, in holistic nutrition, consider the course, whether it's either, even just so that you can help yourself and your family members. The next course starts in September. So now is the time to look through the programs and course catalog. Go to nutritionaltherapy.com. And if you end up registering, make sure to put Well-Fed Women in the referral section and you'll get a free copy of our book, Coconuts and Kettlebells, for doing that. And I'm so excited. Let me know if you sign up for the course. I've talked to a lot of you who have and um, I think it's really cool. Love connecting with you. All right, let's get to Lily because we have so much to talk about. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian slash nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Drawing from the current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Those are all great adjectives. I love them. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, And an online course by the same name presents a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb approach for managing gestational diabetes. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, mostly without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily's clinical experience and extensive background in prenatal nutrition have made her a highly sought-after consultant and speaker in the field. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, is an evidence-based look at the gap between conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines and what's optimal for mother and baby with over 900 and 30 citations. This is the most comprehensive text on prenatal nutrition to date. I am, I get tired just reading that. (laughs) Lily is also the creator of the popular blog, lilynicholsrdn.com, and we will link to that in the show notes. She also has a uh, very vibrant Instagram at lilynicholsrdn. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, So you are the science person and the citation person. (laughs) (laughs) This is what I'm gathering, um, which is which is awesome, because I think that this field, the holistic health field, it's so important to be evidence based and to use the literature in our recommendations, because I think for too long, people have just kind of willy nilly made recommendations without that scientific backing. And we especially in in the Internet world that we live in now, it is so important to have evidence based recommendations and to know that we are we're not just getting opinions, really. I mean, even though it is is it it is an opinion, we're getting opinions based on science. And that's what we get with you, which I so appreciate. Your books are amazing. I want to know 
How did you get into this? Because this is a really interesting niche, but it is one that is so needed. Um, how did you get into all of this? And do, when you went to become, when you became a registered dietitian, did you know that you wanted to get into pregnancy, like prenatal and postpartum nutrition? You know, when I actually decided that I wanted to study nutrition, I was in high school, so I decided really young and was one of those people who did not change my mind when I got into it, which is kind of rare. Uh, but I was actually looking at getting into childhood nutrition because I saw the the childhood obesity epidemic going gangbusters and was like, oh my gosh, we have to do something about it. We need to reform school lunch policy and all sorts of things. <laughs> um, interestingly, that sort of came full circle when I started working with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, um, which is also called Sweet Success for people who are familiar and learned th that gestational diabetes was actually a predisposing trigger, so to speak, for childhood obesity if blood sugar wasn't well controlled in pregnancy. And I was like, hmm, this is like a two birds with one stone situation. If we can help mamas have better blood sugar control in pregnancy, we actually could reduce their child's risk of becoming overweight or obese or developing type 2 diabetes by the time they're 13. I mean, we're diagnosing type 2 diabetes in two-year-olds now, you know, and this used to be like adult-onset diabetes, right? I really became passionate about it from there and then just continued to work in the field. So working clinically, doing a lot of consulting research, of course, you know, the public policy role with the state of California and now writing. I just find the whole field of prenatal nutrition fascinating and how we can use informed food and lifestyle choices to have better, easier pregnancies, less complicated pregnancies, and actually influence the health of, of our child. There's a whole field of study on epigenetics and intrauterine programming and how we can really take a proactive role in the trajectory of our pregnancy and also of our child's life. What you haven't said and what you haven't mentioned, we were talking about this before, is that you are pregnant right now in your third trimester. So I appreciate yes. you being here and using your voice, your precious breath to talk to us because it's <laughs> I short. I found out of breath. <laughs> There's we... lung capacity going on here. Yeah. Um, did you, so when you got pregnant yourself, I don't know if this is your first, you have other children? Yeah, I have a three-year-old also. Okay. So when you got pregnant, was this was it interesting to be able to apply all of this stuff that you had known and learned to your own pregnancy? What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, first time around, I... So last pregnancy, I'd actually already written um, my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And so, of course, and I had worked with so many pregnant women, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of, of pregnant people throughout their pregnancies and even beyond mm -hmm. into postpartum that I, I came into it actually with, I think, low expectations. So that sounds weird, but I mean, I, I was sort of prepared for there being a, a wide range of what's normal to experience in pregnancy, meaning the kinds of symptoms I might experience how I navigate the first trimester with nausea and aversions, how my weight gain pattern might look or not look, how my body might change, because there's just such a huge variation in that as well. So I kind of went into it just sort of expecting the unexpected and knowing that it would be okay, but also, you know, really trying to take a proactive role I mean, after nausea, food aversion phase is over in eating as well as I could and keeping active and moving as much as I could. I mean, within reason, obviously, um, but just trying to plan for and, and prepare for a, a simple pregnancy, if that's possible. And then between that pregnancy, I was very lucky to have an uncomplicated pregnancy with my first. And then you're thrust into postpartum and all the lack of planning that goes into your first postpartum because nobody really talks about it enough. I, I knew that I needed to write another book. I knew, knew I needed to write one on prenatal nutrition, 
because people kept asking me for it. And I kept being like, just read the gestational diabetes one. And it's kind of <laughs> the same thing. And then after having gone through pregnancy and like, you realize just how many questions come up and just how yeah. much misinformation you get, even from your providers. I was like, oh my gosh, I need, I need to write like a really in-depth uh, book on this. So once I had a little more brain power back, I started writing that book around uh, 10 months postpartum. So I mean, not, I had like, you know, a quarter of my brain power back. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that definitely, you know, my first pregnancy experience certainly played into what I focused on, how I communicated information, um, what what kinds of questions I answered and to what depth, because people just ask me really, really in-depth questions. And so that's kind of what I gave them with Real Food for Pregnancy. Yeah, they're they're mega books. That's I I think that's funny because you're like I just spent all this time writing a book. Just read the gestational diabetes one, and they're like, wait a second, but I'm I'm not pregnant anymore. <laughs> I can see I can see the back and forth, but you the the idea is you put so much time and information into that book, but then you know you have to kind of market it differently and go in depth in a different way. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad that you, you know. did get to write. The- not having a book that's all focused on blood sugar, I think is, is yes. even though it applies to everybody, I still think blood sugar uh, management applies across the board. But you know, you're not you're not going to pick up a book on gestational diabetes if you don't have it. So right, right. Yeah, yeah. it was a matter right. of time. Um, I have so many questions running in the back of my head. I'm like, what about supplements? And did she do the glucose drink and all that? We're going to, I'm going to just stop my, my brain from running and we're going to get right into the, the questions that we got from all of our listeners because the, there are, that's all going to come out in our questions. So, um, I'm sure everybody is just like me and they're like, wait, ask her this, wait, ask her that. Um, so I, I want to jump right in. And what we're going to do is basically start with questions about preconception nutrition and move into the questions that more are, are specific to nutrition for pregnancy. And we will pick her brain about all the things. So the first question is, is it really necessary? This is an anonymous question. Is it really necessary to go gluten and dairy free when trying to conceive? So many health podcasts say you should take these out of your diet when you are struggling to conceive and you will listen to just about anything. But on the other hand, it can be stressful trying to maintain a strict diet and plenty of people fall pregnant while eating these foods. So in other words, what's an ideal diet when you're trying to conceive, when you're trying to get pregnant? Mm, okay, that's a bit of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where, where I like to look at, at in terms of fertility nutrition is, and really my focus on nutrition as a whole, is how can we boost the micronutrient intake in the diet? This is really where we have the strongest data on improving fertility, regulating hormones, regulating menstrual cycles, optimizing egg quality, optimizing your chances of conception, reducing your risk of miscarriage, and on and on and on. So I'm always trying to look at how can we boost the micronutrient intake in the diet. Whether or not you need to remove whole food groups from your diet depends on so many factors. So first of all, no, I don't think everybody needs to go dairy or gluten-free. If you have a specific health thing going on where you feel improvement having those dietary changes having those specific restrictions by all means carry on but if there's not something specifically that is triggered by those foods so say like you have some sort of digestive symptoms or you know full-blown celiac disease you can't have any gluten or maybe there's an autoimmune thyroid condition that might respond better gluten-free diet I mean go for it gluten containing foods which come from grains tend to not be the most nutrient-dense foods to begin with so the whole gluten-free thing is like kind of a toss-up in my mind you're not missing out on a ton of micronutrients if you go gluten-free with dairy products there might be a bit more of a trade-off And I don't think everybody needs to consume dairy necessarily, but there are studies showing improved fertility 
in people who consume full-fat dairy products and reduced fertility in people who consume non-fat dairy products. So if you're going to consume dairy products, opt for the full-fat options, and then I'd take it a step further and opt for dairy from grass-fed pasture-raised cows. So you're get, actually getting a boost in a lot of other nutritional components in it, better quality fat, higher vitamin A, higher vitamin E, and so on. But I don't think those are like mainstay foods that are going to make or break your your fertility journey. I think what ends up happening in the holistic health world, or let's just say people who listen to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, they hear, oh, everybody should be ditching gluten and dairy. And it's maybe a recommendation made for somebody, or maybe people just make that recommendation because there are a lot of people who are sensitive to gluten or sensitive to dairy. So if you're not getting pregnant, you know, people kind of make these blanket recommendations. But what you're saying is there is no need for blanket recommendations and blanket recommendations are inaccurate. There is no science that shows when you ditch gluten and when you ditch dairy, you're, you have increased fertility. Is, is that correct? Yeah, correct. I don't think sure. it would necessarily make a difference unless you had a known, say you have a known sensitivity, meaning these foods trigger some sort of an inflammatory reaction in your body. Yeah, higher inflammation levels just as a whole are linked to reduced fertility. So if that is something that is going on for you personally, then yes, avoid it. With dairy, I think there's there's a few more trade-offs nutritionally that I'll just throw out there. One is that say if you're full on like paleo and and don't and don't have dairy or whatever reason don't have dairy um and then maybe you're doing like AIP like autoimmune paleo and now you've cut out eggs and then you're also somebody who doesn't like seafood you've you've just taken out the top 3 sources of iodine in your diet which are really essential to thyroid function and also fertility as a whole um, that's something to consider. You've also just taken out some of your major sources of choline from the diet, which is important for egg quality just in the same way as folate is, arguably more so depending on what your genetics are. So there's just, there's like these little micronutrient like niggly details that come in as you start to restrict more and more. Less so with grains because almost everything in grains you can get from other foods, so I kind of don't care. <laughs> it's just sort of like yes. a toss-up if you want them or you don't want them or if there's a health condition that means you shouldn't have them then you know definitely honor that but with dairy it's a little more like well what else are you getting if you're regularly consuming seafood you have a consistent source of calcium in your diet you're kind of and you're not restricting your fat intake and are consuming fat from both plant and animal sources then dairy is sort of also not going to make or break the micronutrient content of your diet. So as usual, the answer is it depends. So for example, somebody like me, I go gluten-free, but I've done that forever um, because it does cause an inflammation in my body. And dairy is a give or take for me. Um, it really depends on the source and the quality. And I eat a ton of eggs, <laughs> a lot of egg yolks, which are really, you know, have a lot of choline in them. I eat a lot of greens and a lot of um, leafy greens. And so, you know, I sometimes incorporated cheese if I wanted to. I sometimes would just eat, <laughs> try to put some grass-fed butter on things just for the vitamin K2. Um, but other than that, it, you know, it, it wasn't a huge deal for me. It wasn't stressful for me. For me, that worked great. Um, but if you are, tr you right. know, that I think that the most the, all every when people make these like blanket recommendations, they're just trying to say, well, you know, go on this and, you know, basically they want people to reduce potentially inflammatory or potentially problematic foods, foods that are going to cause inflammation. And, you know, it's just not it's not the science. It's not there. So really focus on what I hear uh, you saying is really focus on micronutrients. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned choline because this is one that I've only really started to hear about more recently be talked about. Um, I think we're all very familiar with folate. And we talk about folate because of its connection with, um, you know, baby's brain development. But what is the significance of choline? Can you talk about that? Yes, I love talking about choline. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> 
choline is a uh, B vitamin-like compound that was just, they named it after the rest of the B vitamins were named. So that's why it doesn't have a designation of like vitamin B fill in the blank number, but it is related in its functions to folate um, as well as vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 and glycine and some other nutrients and that it's, it's important for the, the transcription of DNA. So when you're talking about that really early embryonic development and like making baby's DNA and making sure everything is transcribed the way it should be. So you avoid chromosomal abnormalities or birth defects or other issues. Choline is really, really important. Um, it's also really important for brain development as well and for uh, mama's health in pregnancy. So the prevention of uh, preeclampsia and just maintaining placental health and nutrient delivery across the placenta, choline is really important. It is thing that almost, well, not almost nobody is aware of. Now people are talking about it more, but it's kind of a new kid on the block in the nutrition world. We didn't even have a recommended intake for choline until 1998. And since then, we've had just an explosion in research on choline in different age groups and life stages, I guess you could say, which includes pregnancy, showing us that we actually need a lot more choline than what the recommended intakes were set at, because those were set on data from men, not from women, and specifically not for pregnant women. Yeah, so choline is is key. There's a lot of research showing that Choline and folate actually work together for the prevention of neural tube defects. People who have variations in their folate metabolizing genes, such as MTHFR, actually need higher amounts of choline than people who don't have those. So it's something that we really need to be looking at because in the context of whole foods, you're not just getting single nutrients by themselves. You're getting a combination of nutrients that work in synergy. So when you look at where you find choline in foods in the highest amount, you see egg yolks, liver, those are the two top sources by far. And then you see seafood, especially salmon, meat, yogurt, dairy products. And then you see tinier quantities, lesser quantities in certain plant-based foods like broccoli, cauliflower, um, nuts, seeds, beans, legumes, and those sources. Which you've just named all the foods that are really hard to eat when you are feeling super nauseous in the first trimester. Yeah. Um, yeah. So before before we get into that question, I want to pick your brain because I know people are asking, thinking in their head, because this is exactly what I would be questioning. How much choline and how much folate? Um, and should we be taking a prenatal or should we be taking a prenatal plus folate or prenatal plus choline? Or is that something that we can get from one prenatal? And also, do you have a, a recommended prenatal that you love? Okay. I think that's like three or five questions. I might it have lost a lot. count, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll tackle them all. <laughs> so the recommended intake for choline is 450 milligrams per day in pregnancy the data is showing us, and this is really strong data, we're talking randomized controlled trials, which is rare to have those in pregnant women, um, showing us that 930 milligrams is a better place to shoot for. That's the one that's linked to all the reduced risks of the things I just mentioned. So like optimizing baby's brain development, when they test mothers who eat um, are supplemented with just above the recommended intake, 480 milligrams versus 930. The babies of the 930 milligram group perform better on all cognitive tests at all time points throughout infancy and toddlerhood. So aim high on choline, but even if you're just getting like 450 milligrams, that's still good. That's still better than 94% of pregnant women who are not meeting that target. So um, aim high if you can. With folate, the recommended daily allowance is 600 micrograms. Pretty much across the board, every prenatal meets that. I've never seen a prenatal that doesn't contain folate. However, it might contain a, a poorly utilized form known as folic acid, 
versus a better utilized form like L-methylfolate or folinic acid. So you want to look at the type of folate that's in, that's in the supplement. I don't think people necessarily need to megadose with folate or folic acid. And I have several research briefs on my Instagram talking about the problems with specifically with folic acid, the synthetic version of folate that's in most of the supplements on the market. Um, there's actually a lot of risks with taking too much of that form specifically. But there could be cases where your clinician or doctor wants you to take more folate. And as long as you're taking L-methylfolate um, or a combo of L-methylfolate and folinic acid, you're good to go. Okay. And this is another very in-depth technical question. If some, if so, if a whole food prenatal says folate, okay, that's from like a whole food source, or versus using a synthetic supplement, which will be methylated, which means it'll be chelated and it's easier to digest. In other words, should you go? Are are you in support of maybe going more towards the synthetic prenatals that are methylated and much easier to digest, or the whole food prenatals, which won't have it be methylated, but it'll say folate, not folic acid? So the tricky thing with supplements is that they are really not regulated. And so they can kind of put whatever the heck they want on the label. So folate is a catch-all term, which includes folic acid. So some of these whole food prenatals are a, a, they use like a whole food medium or a yeast medium, and they ferment this mixture of nutrients and claim that it's more bioavailable. Uh, A lot of those actually, at least previously, we're using folic acid. So you want to call the company and ask them to clarify what's the source of folate. It should state on the label what it is. I've seen some whole food prenatals that rely on yeast and other things um, as their source of nutrition. I've, I've seen them use L-methylfolate and whatever food medium or yeast they're using um, as part of their supplement. So it should specify. I, I used to be a bigger fan of these whole food prenatals, but honestly, when you look at the data, as long as you're using the, the better, like the more biologically active forms of nutrients, which technically would be synthetic, you're okay, and you actually might be better off than some of these food-based ones because the food-based ones, they might be good on some nutrients, but they're almost always lacking in like five or ten other ones. So it's kind of a, a tricky situation. I'm like, just get as much nutrition from your food as possible and then take a really high-quality prenatal that, yes, has synthetic vitamins, but they're literally the metabolically active ones that your body uses in all of its reactions. So like methylfolate, for example, 90% of the folate in your body is in the form of methylfolate. It just makes sense to use that form versus to use folic acid, which has to be converted, which is a process that doesn't go so well for 40 to 60% of the population that has a variation in their MTHFR enzyme. The second part of your original question was like, what prenatal do I recommend? And I usually recommend the Seeking Health Optimal Prenatal. And that's because, well, A, it's formulated by Dr. Ben Lynch. He's kind of a genius. Um, He's done a lot of the, the, he's responsible for a a lot of the awareness that people have around MTHFR. Um, And it uses all bioactive forms of nutrients and in optimal quantities, hence the name. It's one of the few prenatals that has choline in it. Most of them don't. And it just tends to be well-tolerated across the board. So there's a capsule version. There's a chewable version. There's even a protein powder version where in one serving of protein powder, you have a full serving of your prenatal vitamin as well, which can be helpful in the first trimester. So there's there's a whole range of, of products that he has across the board. Um, and then also my colleague, uh, Ayla Barmer, just came out with a prenatal that she custom formulated um, called Full Circle Prenatal, 
which in many ways is pretty similar to the Seeking Health. It does have more optimal quantities of vitamin D, has higher amounts of choline. There's several different um, differences as well, but it's also a really good one. I will be linking to these in the show notes if you can hear me like typing away. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to take all the notes. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, a membership community that uses the power of direct buying to deliver the world's best healthy food and natural products to members at wholesale prices. Go to thrivemarket.com slash wellfedwomen to sign up and get 25% off your first order. When you sign up for a membership, you're also sponsoring a low-income family in need with a membership. Thrive Market is like Whole Foods, Amazon Prime, and Costco combined. You can shop for thousands of health food and natural products that are 10 to 50% below retail prices and have them delivered to your door fast and totally free with a low minimum purchase. You'll find just about everything you can find at natural grocery stores on Thrive Market, plus more. And all of the food products are categorized by diet and lifestyle, making it easy to find allergy-friendly foods and snacks for your family. Get the highest quality products you love, minus the retail markup, and help American families thrive. To sign up and get 25% off your first order, go to thrivemarket.com slash wellfedwomen. I have a question from, I break for breakfast. I would love to learn about nutrition when breastfeeding while pregnant. Should your prenatal preparation be any different in the lead up to pregnancy if you are still nursing? And how do you manage the nutritional needs of nursing and pregnancy? Or would you recommend weaning? So if somebody is maybe in that postpartum period, do you recommend upping any of those nutrients or um, just kind of taking, still taking that prenatal supplement and of course eating a nutrient-dense diet? Yes to the latter two things you just said. Yes, still taking your prenatal vitamin and yes, still eating a nutrient-dense diet. Um, I will say that there's really not peer-reviewed research on nutrition needs when you overlap pregnancy and breastfeeding together, but we can assume that the nutrient needs are higher given that nutrient needs of breastfeeding mothers are higher. A lot of it depends on how old baby is or your toddler is and how often they're nursing or how much breast milk is is making up the proportion of, of their diet. Because, you know, an older toddler as somebody who like, I nursed my son past two. So like, you know, older toddlers, they're, they're not nursing as often if they're nursing like once or twice a day, you know, but they're eating a whole bunch of solid foods. It's not nearly as much of a drain on your nutritional stores as exclusive breastfeeding for, you know, the first six months or so of, of baby's life. And that's really, by the way, where the recommendations on higher nutrient needs of breastfeeding mothers that's what it's referring to is exclusive breastfeeding. So you're looking at, you know, the early part somewhere in the first year for six months, but some babies don't start or take to solids super early. Um, so, you know, I extend that maybe beyond six months, depending on the case. But uh, you're really talking about that early breastfeeding relationship, not necessarily nursing a toddler. What I will say is that there is quite a bit of research on something they call interpregnancy interval, which is how much time has elapsed between the birth of your first and the conception of your next child. And then looking at the risk of pregnancy complications and health factors, health outcomes um, for, for the subsequent child. And it's actually pretty interesting, but the, the research is pretty clear that waiting at least a year, optimally 18 months, maybe even longer, between the birth of one child and the conception of the next is linked to significantly lower risk of adverse outcomes for both mom and the next baby. And they believe that a lot of this is due to the nutrient repletion that happens and not having a breastfeeding pregnancy overlap, which I don't necessarily think is like a bad thing to have a breastfeeding pregnancy overlap. I have plenty of friends and know plenty of people who have um, tandem nursed or nursed throughout pregnancy or part of pregnancy. Um, But you just have to sort of be aware that that's like an increased 
you know, nutrient pull on your body. Uh, so it's just a, it's just a consideration. You might want to consider having some micronutrient testing to see if you might be deficient in some things before you conceive, screen for anemia, screen for um, thyroid issues. Your thyroid goes through a ton of changes in the first year postpartum. So depending on how far out you are on your postpartum journey, you might want to um, have some additional lab work done just to make sure that everything is is good and you're really in, in you know, feeling feeling up to going through pregnancy again because it's it's a big strain on your body <laughs> I will say personally that the second time around it was really really tough and we got pregnant unexpectedly at the 14 month mark and I do think for most women um, your milk does dry up and it's sort of your body's way of being like eh we got to put a lot of a lot more of our energy and effort and nutrition into this growing baby. And when my milk dried up, it was just a very easy transition for my kiddo. Um, and it happened probably around 10 to 12 weeks pregnant with my son. Mm -hmm. But I will say that this pregnancy has felt much more draining um, physically, physically, even mentally, but also just my body is having a much harder time recovering. And I can tell that I just did this twice in the past two years. You know what I mean? And I think that you have to be, and I can't imagine, you know, I can't, I, I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to learn from people like you and, and just to have a good understanding of nutrition, because I'm sure it would have completely tanked me um, if I wasn't really on top of and not being consumed with, oh, I need to cut calories and I need to lose weight and I should be right. back in my pre, you know, I was, right. I was eating a ton always and really filling my plate with a lot of these nutrient dense foods and lots of fat and it's so, so draining. And so it's, it's important to eat yeah. all of, all of the things. And it's, <laughs> eat all you know, the things. even with an older toddler, it, they're just a lot of work. <laughs> okay. They so are. First pregnancy is a bit of a luxury because <laughs> you can be like, yeah. I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. And you lay on the couch and you sleep or you turn on Netflix and watch something, not a kid's show, um, yeah. <laughs> to actually unwind. And with a toddler, there there is no break. So you're just kind of going constantly. And and that wears on you too. It's a lot of your adrenals, you know, to, to oh care for young children. So it's, it's yeah, I, I feel you. The second round is more draining. I would agree with that. Uh, really interesting question from Brittany, I am seven months postpartum and thinking ahead to the next pregnancy. Any recommendations on lifestyle changes and habits for decreasing the likelihood of gestational diabetes during my next pregnancy? So my guess is she had gestational diabetes this preg in her previous pregnancy. Is there anything she can do to maybe prevent it from in from happening in the next one? Okay. So this is like the million dollar question because everybody wants to avoid gestational diabetes. And uh, the, the stats would have it that your likelihood of getting gestational diabetes again in a subsequent pregnancy is quite high if you've had it the first time around. So first of all, just, just understand that it might not necessarily be something that's 100% within your control. There are, however, a number of things that have been shown to reduce the risk of gestational diabetes. So these would be things to keep in the back of your mind. A, breastfeed as long as you can, because that's shown to reduce the risk of gestational diabetes or subsequently developing type 2 uh, diabetes. It's really helpful for your blood sugar metabolism because breastfeeding is like, it's just pulling glucose out of your body when you're manufacturing milk. So that's excellent for your um, insulin resistance and, and like glucose sensitivity. I don't know if I'd push this heavily, like at seven months postpartum necessarily, but all of the lifestyle factors that help you maintain a healthy body weight are also naturally going to help you maintain like better uh, insulin sensitivity and lower blood sugar levels. So I don't recommend specifically like trying to lose weight, but just as you plan for when you try to conceive um, sometime in the future, the things that help keep you satiated after meals 
the focus on nutrient-dense foods, the inclusion of certain micronutrients that help with insulin sensitivity, like all of those things are going to work for you. So that would include having um, adequate levels of vitamin D. So that's something where you want to get a blood test for 25-hydroxy-D and see where your levels are at. Optimize those preconception if you can. Um, and the latest data is showing us that about 40 nanograms per mil is, the, is a, a good evidence-based level to uh, shoot for in pregnancy. Move your body, which is really hard with a seven-month-old because you're kind of, <laughs> you kind of can't. <laughs> I mean, you can, they're getting more active, but it, it's harder to step away. So for me, I'm, I'm like not a gym person, although I am active, but um, the more you can carry your baby around, like you're automatically getting a workout by carrying them versus pushing them in a stroller. So taking sort of a Katie Bowman approach to building movement into your life, stacking your life, as she calls it, that's always a good thing to do. If you are a gym person or feel good getting away for some sort of exercise classes and you feel that your body is recovered enough, your pelvic floor is in a good place and, and whatnot, that might be something to consider. Um, and then just, you know, getting on the floor and moving in the ways that your seven-month-old is moving, like crawling is great exercise. <laughs> Laying on the floor and rolling over side to side like that's actually really great exercise if you do it enough um doing squats and sort of learning to stand like your your toddler is doing or baby is doing like those are all really good activities that aren't necessarily like a workout in a gym but they have shown that the more active you are preconception and during pregnancy that can reduce the risk of gestational diabetes i believe it's up to 79 percent, so that's quite high and then just being cognizant about your carbohydrate intake and and making sure that you're matching that to what your body can tolerate. Everybody's tolerance to carbohydrates is different. So if you still have your blood sugar meter back from when you were pregnant and you can test some post-meal numbers to see where you're at, um, that would be really helpful to help you sort of fine-tune what level of carbs is going to work well for you. Yeah, those would be my top tips. There's probably more, but you know, enough protein, that's huge because that's a big appetite and blood sugar regulator right there. So just trying to get protein anytime you can, <laughs> every meal and snack kind of helps offset the blood sugar spike that you might get from um, eating a bunch of carbohydrates. It's, it's really helpful. And they actually show in um, early pregnancy at the time that you do, in fact, conceive that um, adequate protein in the first trimester may actually help your pancreas adapt properly um, and may reduce the risk of gestational diabetes. Again, that's not like a magic bullet, but as much as you can, you know, get your protein intake up a little bit, it's probably going to be helpful. Can you clarify on the vitamin D? Is that Would that appear on a supplement as 4,000 IUs is what you were recommending? So I was describing the blood levels of vitamin oh, D. Oh, so that's 25-hydroxy-D. So that would be like your circulating levels of vitamin D. Um, 40 nanograms per mil is what you want to look at. It's, it's not the same as the units that they use to measure vitamin D supplements, but specifically for breastfeeding mothers, the evidence-based dosage is actually 6,400 IUs of vitamin D per day. And that generally ensures that there's going to be enough vitamin D in your breast milk that your baby doesn't need a separate supplement, but also tends to support you in reaching that 40 nanograms per mil level in your bloodstream as well. So you may as well just like that dosage is a good safe dosage. We have randomized controlled trials using that dosage, um, but double check with your healthcare provider, ideally, before you conceive to see where your vitamin D levels are at. It plays a role in insulin sensitivity. And so it is something that I, I really recommend people check. Yeah, I will. Um, I will link to the sinking health. It's 5000 I use, and it has K2 with it. And the reason that I think that that 5000 IU number is great is because obviously, 
nobody has thought about this yet, but nobody has made a vitamin D supplement with 6,400 IUs. So um, you do. It's a missed (laughs) marketing opportunity. Somebody write that down and do that. (laughs) Um, Your postpartum vitamin D supplement. Um, Seeking Health makes a 5,000 IU with K2. And then your prenatal, um, if you continue taking that while you're breastfeeding, usually will have somewhere around 1,000. And then, you know, somewhere right between 1,000 and 2,000 IUs. And which is what my prenatal does. And so then I kind of make up with it with that. So, yeah, yeah. and the Seeking Health one, the Seeking Health prenatal is 2,000 IUs in a serving. So you'd be at 7,000, which is, that would be fine. Um, And then if you're in the sun a whole bunch, you could probably, or just you're a real human being who forgets to take your supplements every once in a while, (laughs) it'll all even out in the end. Yes. Uh, Can you please talk about eating during the first trimester while having extreme nausea 24 hours a day? Um, This is, she says she's currently surviving on potato chips, Gatorade, gluten-free toast. It's all I can get down consistently. She's um, considering the anti-nausea prescription. Lily, I get this question a lot and I feel bad because I never know what to say to people. I'm like, try to stomach it. I don't know. I'm so sorry. So it's, you know, we recommend things like liver and eggs and greens. And it's like all the stuff that's like, Ooh, like is, nobody wants to eat it. So h- what are your recommendations for all the nausea in that first trimester? Yeah. So first of all, solidarity, the first trimester sucks. It just does. Yes. And I used to think that, oh, I'll get pregnant. I won't have any nausea because I'm going to be so healthy. And then, no, it's just <laughs> pregnancy hormones and they make you nauseous and they give you food aversions and they make you really tired and you just kind of feel like garbage. So solidarity, it's actually quite normal. There is no perfect cure for nausea. If you're super, super struggling and you can't even keep like fluids down, then definitely consider one of those nausea medications from your doctor. Or if you're just so, so, so miserable, it also might be worth a consideration. So just that's always an option. Um, As far as like food and natural approaches, I mean, what she's doing is very typical. It's just whatever you can do to get through the day. For me personally, the nausea and food aversions like they kind of came in waves and what would work one day wouldn't work the next day or like wouldn't work two hours later so just constantly rotating through okay what can I try next what can I try next and I mean I was fortunate that I wasn't throwing up a whole bunch but that whole just sort of lingering queasiness I was like trying to describe it to my husband it's like you're like 30% sure you have food poisoning but (laughs) You kind of need to wait it out and everything sounds bad and everything smells bad and like nothing fully settles you. Um, Yeah, that's kind of how it is. That's exactly how it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the small frequent meals and snacks of whatever you can get down is helpful. If you can fit in some protein, it really does help mitigate like how soon the nausea queasiness is going to creep back up on you. The challenge is what protein foods you can tolerate really varies person to person. Um, I was able to keep down, I was able to get in and keep down eggs, but it would be like one egg (laughs) eaten over a period of time or like an egg hidden in like those two ingredient egg and banana pancakes. So it's like kind of sweet and has carbs and it's bready but there's still nutrition in it. Um, That was a really helpful thing for me. A lot of times dairy is surprisingly helpful in the nausea phase. It's cold. It doesn't have a strong odor. It's kind of flavorless, so to speak. I mean, it doesn't have as much flavor as like eating fish or something, right? So if if you have been dairy-free before, but your body is telling you to eat dairy, which is a pretty common first trimester craving, roll with it. Even if you decide to take out dairy later on or eat less of it, just roll with it. You know, might be Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, cheese, get it down. Protein shakes actually might come in helpful at this time. And a lot of times they have kind of a mild flavor and they're, they don't have a strong smell and you can blend them with fruit and almond milk or something. They're just kind of bland and cold and not stinky. Um, Those might be helpful. 
sour, salty, cold foods often are helpful. So pickles, olives. I found that like Kalamata olives were really helpful for my nausea for a period of time until they stopped working. And then it was really disappointing. But you know, for a period of time that worked for me. I hear you on the potato chips. I don't know if it's like the the crunchiness, the saltiness, especially if it's salt and vinegar and they're a little sour, or maybe the, the electrolytes in there, you're getting like your salt and potassium in one place. Like if that's what gets through, again, roll with it. It's all temporary <laughs> and it's actually a really good sign um, if you're experience, experiencing some degree of nausea because it's usually coincides with like the surge in HCG, which is a sign of a a viable embryo. Not that like, if you don't have nausea, something is wrong, but if you do have nausea, at least you can rest assured that this is probably a viable, healthy pregnancy. So just get through it as best as you can. I don't know. I wish I had like a better, a better piece of advice. I mean, all the like, you know, take magnesium or take B6 or take ginger. Like those are all additional things you can try and they work to varying degrees. Like I found that I just kind of like tried to do all of the above and whatever pick and choose from which thing to try on which day and nothing made it go away completely. But I also wasn't like vomiting my brains out constantly. So maybe it did do something, but it didn't make Mm. like the queasiness disappear. It just lessened it. Mm. You know what? I I actually really like the insight you gave about everything. it, it, It goes in waves. And so Sometimes you have a random moment where you feel okay, and that's the time to get in maybe a hard-boiled egg and maybe a salad or something. And that's exactly how I how I did it. Um, Absolutely, I, like you, I I never was just throwing up a ton, but I I always felt like mild food poisoning, like something exactly. was about to erupt, right? And so, so I would have these moments, especially in the morning, where I actually felt a little bit better in the morning and I could eat a hard-boiled egg, for example. Or maybe if I couldn't do the hard-boiled egg, I could I could fry the egg and eat the fried egg. So experiment with, like, different variations, too. Um, and if I, if I could at least get egg yolks in, maybe I didn't do the, the egg white, if I could at least get egg yolks in, and then I'd try to get a salad in, you know, a couple times a week and I would change up either the dressing I used. Maybe I would just use olive oil and put something on top, put, you know, a little salt or something on top of it to make it a little bit more like appealing. Um, that's what I would have to do. And I'd have to kind of go with the flow. Sometimes I wouldn't eat dinner and I would just eat that for lunch. So if you find that there are certain times during the day, too, where you're definitely more prone to nausea, which for me ended up always being the end of the day. And it's hard because, like, I, I couldn't eat anything. And I remember getting, like, dizzy, you know, because I oh, yeah. I was essentially dieting and starving myself. Um, and I and I was still breastfeeding. And I was like, whoa, this must, this is, cr-. like, I am not eating enough. But I, it's, oh, so yeah. it's, it's really Even hard. Even more so when you're nursing because it's, like, draining your, your fluids and electrolytes, too. So that might be a, a situation where if you are, if that does overlap breastfeeding and pregnancy, try to get some electrolytes sort of drinks going. I have an electrolyte replenishment drink in chapter seven of Real Food for Pregnancy. So you could check out that or just plain old coconut water. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I found like trying to get in enough salt. That actually really helped my nausea this round. I wasn't as aware of all the research on salt before um, when I had my son. But with this pregnancy, I was much more aware that like, I need more salt and my fluid volume is increasing in my body. And like, really trying to get in the electrolytes. Um, and that that helped quite a bit. So yeah, it's tough. I mean, you kind of feel like I think especially for people who are really nutrition aware, you you kind of feel like a failure. You're like, Oh, my God, I'm screwing up this pregnancy. And I'm not getting any <laughs> of the nutrients baby needs. And I need to have the choline and the iron and the yeah. B6 and the omega threes. And I can't <laughs> fish and sardines are disgusting. And blah, like, you kind of can go into this downward spiral and you really have to just stop yourself and be like, everybody experiences nausea to some degree or almost everybody. This is a phase. My body has nutrient stores that it's pulling from right now. And this is all a sign that things are going the way they should be. And then inevitably the nausea phases fades at a certain point usually around the end of the first trimester or somewhere in like the first month or two of the second trimester. So don't 
don't freak out if it doesn't stop at 13 weeks on the dot. Mine, mine doesn't either. <laughs> it like, it like gradually fades into like week 15 and 16 and 17 until it's gone. Um, you will suddenly have an appetite for real food again. And it's really an amazing feeling to be able to eat enough food to stay satisfied for a period of time and have <laughs> a large enough portion of protein to not be starving 30 minutes later. But, yeah. you know, up until then, just roll with it, eat 18 times a day, have snacks by your bed, eat in the middle of the night if you need to, have your ginger chews, like just whatever it is to get through the day. That was great advice. And if you do, if you are gluten-free, there are plenty of, like I keep getting that, well, I don't know what to do, I'm gluten-free. You know, Simple Mills crackers and like their muffin mixes, some of that stuff's really easy to get down. Um, And to me, it's it's made with almond flour and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty, it's it's not like a total mess. It's not going to leave you feeling, you know, sick. Um, There's, there are a lot of options. Yeah. All right, so our last question before we finish up, and the next time we have you on, we're going to dive into the glucola drink and gestational diabetes and all that stuff, and then um, and then breast uh, nutrition while breastfeeding. We're going to dive into that a little deeper. But our last question for today is, is intermittent fasting okay in the first trimester as long as I listen to my body? Maybe not as extreme as the 16-8 rule, obviously, but what do you think? So... I actually just wrote a blog post on this not too long ago, so you can link to that in the show notes. But okay, um, I'm, I'm guessing this person is asking this question preemptively before they're actually pregnant. That's what I'm getting. Yes, because there's that's usually how this question goes. Is it's like it would be really nice idea if this whole intermittent fasting thing would work in pregnancy because let me list all the dozens of benefits, uh, and then you get pregnant and experience all of these symptoms we were just talking about and it doesn't work it especially generally speaking doesn't work in the first trimester because in order to keep the nausea at bay you usually have to eat small amounts all day long I mean you eat like a bird just to stay alive there are always exceptions to the rule, so there might be, you know, a, a 0.001% of people who feel okay doing this, but I do think we need to honor the signals that your body is is sending you um, and also honor that this is a time really to be thinking about boosting our nutrient intake as much as possible. And typically with intermittent fasting... It depends on how it's practiced. Everybody has different variations of it. But you're avoiding eating for a specific period of time because of some sort of metabolic benefit. But that means that the amount of time that you have left for eating, your eating window, is limited. Now, maybe in mid-pregnancy, some people can get away with it for a period of time where you actually feel good, like eating a, you know, larger meals and having you know fewer spaced and larger meals within maybe a 10 hour window or something and then you go to sleep early you wake up you wait to have breakfast for a while if that works well for you and it's sort of a natural pattern that you fall into but you're still meeting your calorie needs and your micronutrient needs more power to you that situation usually doesn't present itself (laughs) so um It's hard, A, in the first trimester, but then as you get closer to the end of pregnancy, speaking as somebody in the third trimester, you don't have a lot of room in your stomach because your baby is taking up like all of this room in your abdominal cavity and it's squishing your stomach as well as your lungs, hence why I sound so out of breath as I'm talking. And it's hard to eat large meals at one time like my meal size is significantly smaller towards the end of pregnancy than it is in mid-pregnancy or pre-pregnancy or forget about breastfeeding when I'm eating like quadruple portions right so um you kind of just have to have to roll with it and and listen to your body what I would suggest is that you eat to the point of satiety before you feel overstuffed and yucky and sick, stop there. And then the next time you feel hungry again, eat again. And if you wake up in the middle of the night hungry, eat. 
and then go back to sleep. Like you don't have to have a specified time off from eating. Your body is doing so much work to grow a new human that I think intentionally trying to take a specified amount of time off from eating just doesn't make sense. But hey, if you fall into the, I like having an early dinner, I go to sleep early, I naturally have, say, maybe a 12-hour fast overnight, great. Just don't call it intermittent fasting. You're just following your body's cues. Mm, I like that. I think the other thing, too, that is important to recognize is sometimes the whole intermittent fasting thing, we... um we intentionally eat less, right? Because there is a smaller window. Window, And I know that a lot of people would say, well, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be eating the same amount of calories. Um, but the truth of the matter is a lot of people do eat less and there is some sort of, you know, down regulation of calories overall. And so as women who are pregnant, who are uh, your calorie needs are going up, especially during pregnancy and breastfeeding, it it's more important in my mind to be really aware of making sure that you're eating at all times when you can, like Lily was just saying, so that you don't, you're not cutting calories in pregnancy. In other words, cutting micronutrients, cutting macronutrients exactly. that you desperately need, right? Um, and also, don't, as it, if you process it, um, you were mentioning, Lily, it's really interesting thinking, oh, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, eat. Don't feel guilt or shame about it. And I think that that's a really important thing to touch on because if you think that you, if you're doing intermittent fasting because it really makes you feel really great, um, that might be an easy transition for you. But if you're doing intermittent fasting because you're trying to lose weight or you've been trying to uh, manage your weight or maintain your weight and that's kind of been your focus, it is going to mess with you if you try to continue that and you keep that mindset. So I think it's really important to do a little bit of mindset work maybe before as you prepare and as you're trying to get pregnant that, okay, I may not be able to maintain these windows, so to speak, and that's okay. I'm still going to be healthy, right? I'm still, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be healthy. I, I don't have to intermittent fast to be healthy. And so that might be just a transition that you do before you get pregnant, um, if you are doing intermittent fasting before you get pregnant, so that you know, hey, it's probably not, it may not work out. And if it doesn't, that's cool. Um, and I, I'm still, I can still have a very healthy pregnancy. And in fact, it might even be more healthy if I kind of give that up. So a amen to that. Okay. <laughs> I just, I, I was like, ooh, yeah. Cause I, you know, I've been there. Um, and it's like, I can see that. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, well, I'm hungry now, but I really don't want to eat because I, because I want to keep that fat. You know, I should, I should be fasting overnight. And right. The truth, yeah. And the math. Yeah, just, the whole, yeah. Forget the whole idea of fasting just, overnight as being like a goal. It. Yeah. I mean, just coming from the person who's like written the book on, on pregnancy nutrition, first trimester, I, Almost, it wasn't every night, but many nights, more nights out of not, <laughs> I would have to eat in the middle of the night. So there was always food at my bedside. If I woke up, I would immediately be nauseous and I'd have to eat something. So I'd keep like a little um, salted cashews and some um, dried tart cherries were like this good match for me for whatever reason. Um, I'd keep that by the bedside. And eat some of that. Sometimes I'd have to full on get up and have something more substantial. But if I could avoid getting out of bed, better. And then in the second trimester, I had more of a respite from needing to eat in the middle of the night, except during like crazy growth spurts. I, I, I tend to go through a growth spurt as well as baby <laughs> in the second trimester. <laughs> so there were periods of time I needed to eat in the middle of the night. And again, it's just if I wake up hungry, I'm going to need to eat something. And then third trimester, you're having like constant dance parties going on in there. So I wake up, I like roll over or I have to get up to go pee and then I try to go back to sleep and then there's a half hour dance party. I don't know, maybe it's used up all my energy, but if I'm, if that makes me hungry again, which sometimes it does, I'm out of bed again to go eat something. You know, it's kind of preparing you for motherhood when your sleep is constantly interrupted 
until yes. the end of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Don't even talk about newborn life because usually you're eating dinner at 2 a.m. Because that's when, you, that's when you're all up and that's when you're able to eat. Like, right. I remember standing downstairs being like, I'm eating dinner at, at midnight. This is hilarious. Like, and this is the only time I finally got my kid off of my body, you know, into the bassinet. So it's just... It's preparing you. It's that's preparing that's you. Sure. You've got to roll with it. Your body is not in your control. Your <laughs> eating times aren't within your control. Your sleep isn't necessarily within your control. It's all about just sort of rolling with it. Really eases your anxiety and makes the transition much, much smoother when you set your expectations low and you just sort of roll with it and get through it, you know? This has been wonderful. We could go on for another hour and we will in a couple weeks when she comes back and we're going to talk about a lot more. Lily, where can we find you? Um, I know we talked about your website. Is there anything special you're working on now that we should know about that I haven't mentioned? Most of my energy is just going on working on this baby situation that is growing. Uh, But what I've previously done, things that are on my website that you can get, um, you can get a free chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free at lilynicholsrdn.com. So check that out. Has a really cool um, micronutrient comparison on the conventional prenatal diet and a real food one. You can guess which one comes out on top. Uh, There's also my blog and all my books and stuff are linked up. And then for people who really want to go in depth on on nutrition stuff, I do also teach uh, continuing education webinars geared towards healthcare practitioners over at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy. So that's whnacademy.com. So there's a webinar on breastfeeding and nutrition. There's one on postpartum nutrient repletion and recovery. There's one on real food for pregnancy, gestational diabetes nutrition, vitamin D in pregnancy. And then my colleague has a bunch on fertility um, topics as well. So you can check those out if you really like to get into the weeds. Yes, I'm pretty sure everybody does because we were in them today. So <laughs> go to lilynicholsrdn.com, get her books. We will link to them in the show notes, read them, and then come back in two weeks when she will be here talking more about gestational diabetes and postpartum nutrition. Thank you, Lily. And for more from her, again, go to lilynicholsrdn.com. For more from me, go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. You can buy Coconuts and Kettlebells, my cookbook on Amazon. You can also find it by going to coconutsandkettlebells.com slash book. Thank you so much for being here. We will talk to you next week.